Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu slash JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. This is Matt Tullis. You can download Gangry the Podcast on iTunes or find links to all our episodes at www.gangrythepodcast.com. That's www.gangrythepodcast.com. Gangry the Podcast is also now available on Stitcher Radio On Demand. Stitcher is an award-winning free mobile app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows on demand. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. This is Matt Tullis. On this Gangry the Podcast, we talk with Luke Dittrich. Dittrich won the 2012 National Magazine Award for feature writing for his story on the Joplin, Missouri tornado. The story is published in Esquire, where Dittrich is a contributing editor and has been writing for eight years. Joplin told the story of eight people who randomly ended up together in a gas station during the devastating tornado. His most recent story was The Prophet. That story is about neurosurgeon Dr. Eben Alexander. Alexander claims to have visited heaven in a best-selling book, but Dittrich's piece pretty much debunks those claims. The story is remarkable primarily because of Dittrich's interactions with Alexander. The Prophet is also remarkable in another sense, in that it's the first piece that Esquire tried selling on its website as an individual story. Readers had to pay $1.99 in order to read it online. We're here with Luke Dittrich today. Uh, Luke, thanks for joining us on Gangry the Podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, the most recent story that you had in Esquire was The Prophet uh, about Dr. Eben Alexander. Uh, I talked a little bit about that, that in the in- introduction. Um, can you talk a little bit about that story? I'm particularly interested in how you, like, that story came about, how you ended up doing that story. Right. Um, I had actually uh, read when it first came – When actually, I guess this was about a week prior to um, Dr. Alexander's book coming out. Uh, there was a cover story um, uh, for the the now defunct print version of Newsweek magazine um, that he wrote, and it was sort of adapted from 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 the book. It was kind of a um, a condensed version in a lot of ways of of the book, and and the the cover tagline was was Heaven is real, and I think below it said something like a, a neurosurgeon's uh, journey to the afterlife. Um, so it was obviously a, a striking uh, cover, and uh, um, uh, so I picked it up and read it and uh, found it intriguing, um, for sure. And uh, I guess I can't remember exactly how long afterwards um, my uh, editor kind of asked if I, I, I wanted to look into doing a, a profile of this guy. Um, and I think they, you know, they, they thought of me as the guy to do it, um, basically because this is my editor at, at Esquire, Tyler Cabot. Um, I think sort of he thought I might be a, a good guy to do it because I, I've, I've written on sort of topics in, in neuroscience before and, and written about my, uh, my grandfather who um, uh, was a neurosurgeon yeah, uh, I just, as well. I just so want to talk about, 
I want to talk about that story too at some point in time. That was, the, I think, the first story that I ever read by you. So, okay, um, but go yeah. ahead and go on. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, no. So I, I, uh, and as it as it turned out, actually, um, uh, Dr. Evan Alexander's father, who was also a, a neurosurgeon, um, it turned out he was he was quite good friends with with my grandfather. Um, so there were all sorts of, you know, strange, strange connections. Anyway, it made, it, it, it made sense for me to do the story. And, and, uh, so then I took a, a hard look, not just at that Newsweek article, but at the book itself and, uh, you know, began what I guess ended up being sort of just a, a, a very lengthy kind of fact checking process. Um, you know, pulling at the, at the strands of the, of the, of the book and, and seeing, uh, seeing if they would give. And as it turned out, a lot of them did. Yeah, I think one thing that stands out about that story is kind of like the relationship that you developed with um, with Dr. Alexander, um, and that comes through towards the end when he's kind of asking you, um, you to not print some of the things that you've come up with, or, or you know, there's that kind of dynamic going on. Um, were you surprised by the way that kind of developed? Well, I I'm not going to say that we developed really a, a close relationship um, at all. I mean, we we really only we we met once in person. Um, I spent several hours with him as, at his house. Um, we exchanged a number of of emails and and voicemails, and then we had a second kind of extended uh, Skype interview. Um, so I can't say that we you know that that we really became uh, friends. Uh, um, Though, as you know, I mean, when you when you spend when you when you spend any length of time with with somebody that you're writing about, you do develop more than like a, a clinical relationship with them, I guess. But um, but I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that we were that we developed any sort of real friendship or anything. Yeah. Um, what was the most challenging aspect of that story? Uh, it was. It ended up being very challenging. To write, I I, uh, I struggled with the the structure of it a lot, um, and uh, m- my editor, who I mentioned before, Tyler, um, really uh, did a fantastic job with this one. I I uh, I think I I sort of um, you know swan and missed twice, I believe, at kind of drafts of this story, <laughs> and uh, and and was just fig- trying to you know really struggling with with figuring out what the what the right structure was for it, how to tell this story that had a lot of different kind of moving parts. And also it was this, you know, his story combined with kind of the process of my reporting and sort of a lot of past and present interwoven. Um, and uh, ultimately, I think Tyler sent me after, I think, my, my second pretty much failed draft, um, sent me just this very short note, um, just a, a few hundred words um, where he, you know, just sort of set up in a, in a, in a, in a simple way saying, you know, maybe why don't you try approaching it like this and gave me an idea for this sort of, you know, he, 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 he gave me like, you know, a half sentence for, for each, uh, section for the first few sections. Um, and it totally kind of clicked and made sense for me there. Then once I, once I saw that note and so I kind of, I, I did another, <laughs> I took another stab at it. Um, you know, using that approach, and it ended up really, uh, it, it ended up feeling feeling a lot better to me than than, than the previous versions did. Um, so that that was one where uh, where where Tyler really kind of saved my ass. It's uh, it's kind of comforting to know that even writers who are now writing for Esquire uh, 
have those stories that are just so hard to figure out and and that you still need your editors to kind of bail you out at time to time. Oh yeah, no, for sure, always. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about your relationship with with Tyler and kind of how that's developed and maybe how that's helped you as a writer and reporter? Sure. Yeah. No, I've I've been working with Tyler um, at Esquire pretty much exclusively now since 2009, I believe. Um, I had uh, the, yeah my my first story with him was a profile I did of Todd Palin right after the, uh, right after the 08 election. Um, and, uh, I had been working at Esquire off and on. I think I did my first sort of, you know, freelance feature for them in 2005. Um, and I, I, my first few stories for them, I, I did with a guy who was working there then named Terry Noland. Um, and then I did some stories, um, uh, for a guy named Dave Katz, uh, and they were both great to work with. Um, but Tyler now I've been working with for longer than anybody, and he's, he's, he's really fantastic. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's one of those things where you, and I've, I've talked to, this, to him about this before, I, 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 we had sort of uh, uh, our, our, that first story that I mentioned, the Todd Palin one, was kind of rough going because I think we were both sort of trying to figure out each other's styles and and uh, all of that and and uh, um, it's kind of you know it's kind of a, a weird sort of courtship when you're first working with with an editor and you know you're trying to prove yourself and they're trying to prove themselves and and uh, um, it can get it can get a little mildly contentious um, but now it's it's this very comfortable relationship where we work together on enough stories together. Um, where especially, and, and we've worked under pressure quite a few times. We've done quite a few stories where we've had really killer deadlines, uh, and managed to, you know, pull it off. So I think there's a, there's a real comfort and a, and a real sort of sense that, um, we trust each other. I mean, I, I, I now, you know, trust Tyler's, kind of view implicitly. I mean, I'll still, we'll, we'll still argue about things, but, um, uh, when, when he feels strongly about something, uh, I tend to, you know, give him the benefit of the doubt. And I think that, that he's probably the same way with me. Um, so we kind of, we, 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 we trust each other's abilities and it's a, it's a, it's a good place to be with an editor for sure. Yeah. I mean, that seems like something that takes some time to develop as well. Definitely, definitely. I mean, I think, yeah, uh, so, yeah, what is it, 2009? So it's been almost four years now. Um, uh, and, um, yeah, no, it, 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 it takes a while, but it's great. It's great when you find, you know, a great editor who, who, um, who you can be kind of comfortable with. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a strange sort of thing because you're, you're no longer having to try to kind of prove yourself with every sentence because there's enough of a history there that... that um, you can just sort of, you know, try things and, and, and not be worried and, and too distressed if, uh, if, uh, if those things fail. Yeah. Um, the, the, the big story, uh, that won you the national magazine award was the story Joplin about the tornado, uh, in Missouri. Um, can you talk a little bit about that story? And I'm intrigued by the reporting process there. Um, pre-reporting, especially like maybe before you got to Missouri, um, yeah. what you had to go through and, and how you actually ultimately found those eight people um, uh, who had that shared experience. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was more than eight. I think the number is uh, uh, 23, something like that. There were, there were a whole heap of people in there. Um, 
uh, a lot more than they even thought. Um, but the that story that's that's a story idea that I can really pretty much it's the only one I can I can entirely credit to my mom. Uh, I was down in St. Louis, Missouri, working on a um, profile of Chuck Berry, and I I actually arrived in St. Louis I think the day after um, the Joplin tornado hit. Um, and so, but, but of course I wasn't, you know, I, I, you know, I had planned the Chuck Berry trip, uh, weeks before. So I arrived the day after the tornado hit, um, the news down there was dominated obviously by, um, by the tornado. Uh, but, um, but it wasn't something that struck me as, you know, for one thing I was kind of wrapped up in Chuck, in, in Chuck Berry's story. So I was thinking about Chuck Berry and trying to get access to him and, you know, figuring out all how, you know, how the reporting for that was going to work. Um, but I was still being kind of bombarded by this imagery from the tornado, which was harrowing and devastating and, and just sort of awful. Um, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't something that I was looking at as a, as a potential story at that point. And then I, uh, I had a telephone conversation with my mom uh, where she mentioned, since she knew I was down in Missouri, she was talking about the tornado. And uh, she mentioned having heard something on NPR about some folks who had been stuck in a cooler and there had been some sort of YouTube video and they had talked to the kid who had shot the YouTube video, uh, who had shot like it was an iPhone video that he had then put on YouTube. And she said that she didn't see the video, but she heard some of the audio from it on NPR. Um, and that she suggested I take a listen to it. So I, I went to YouTube, uh, watched this, you know, five minute, 40 second long, whatever it was, um, uh, iPhone video, um, that a guy named Isaac Duncan had shot. And it was some of the most kind of, I don't know, just sort of powerful media that I'd ever experienced. It was, uh, you know, I, you may have heard it. It's, it's this, um, intensely, emotional and harrowing kind of visceral document of what it what I imagine it might be like to be in a situation like that um, just the noise of the tornado the screams of the people the, the 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 sounds of the building being torn apart as these people were you know taking shelter together in this in this beer cooler um, but it's at the same time, it becomes strangely moving at the end because these people in kind of their, 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 their worst moments when they feel like they have every reason to believe that they're about to die, they start spontaneously shouting out that they, that they love each other. And um, so I heard this, I, or it's, I, I say I heard because even though it is a video, it's, it's, it's pretty dark and murky. You're not looking at, at much. It's, it's mainly audio. So I heard slash watched this video. And uh, um, and I was left wanting to know who these people were. Like I, I found it very moving. I knew a little bit about who Isaac Duncan was at that point because he had been on NPR and uh, he'd been interviewed on CNN, as were two of his buddies who were in there with him. But I didn't know who, who all else was in the cooler. Um, uh, and nobody did, it turned out, um, uh, because they had all been strangers kind of brought together um, by, you know, happenstance in this little convenience store, um, on the edge of town. And, uh, and after the tornado hit, after they sort of 
miraculously survived it, they all dispersed and went back to wherever they came from and did not keep in touch. So I, uh, I saw that and I immediately thought that that would be a story to find out who these people were and to tell how they had come together and basically tell the story of this, of this iPhone video, but tell it in, in, in kind of a full uh, contextualized way. Um, and so I, 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 I remember I, I made a YouTube account. I didn't have a YouTube account. I made a YouTube account so that I could send a direct message to, to Isaac, um, who had shot the video. And I said, look, you know, it's my name. I, I, um, I'm a reporter. I'm here in St. Louis. I'd love to come talk to you. And I have this idea. I'd love to see if I could figure out who, who else was in the cooler with you. Um, could you help me out with that? Would you talk to me? Uh, and he said, sure. Um, you know, come on, come over. And uh, so I think two days later, I basically put Chuck Berry on hold, put this, that story on hold and, and drove to, to Joplin, which is about, I don't know, five and a half hours, five and a half hours from St. Louis, something like that. Um, and I spent more or less the next month in, in and around Joplin. At first, I couldn't stay. Well, actually, I, the first week I sort of spent in this uh, sort of church shelter um, in in Joplin, uh, that was um, for uh, people who were um, doing kind of cleanup work and displaced families, and they did have extra room. I did the first, you know, the first few days while I was still kind of getting my reporting up and running. Um, when I was sort of on my off hours, I was helping with um, with the cleanup a little bit. And then after the reporting really started taking off, I, I felt bad about taking up any more space in the church. So I went and, and got a, a hotel in Springfield, uh, yes, Springfield, I think, which is about an hour, hour outside of Joplin uh, and stayed there um, off and on for the until until hotels started opening up again around Joplin after after the, you know, after some of the initial cleanup work had been done. But yeah, it was about four weeks start to finish in the reporting, sort of tracking down these various individuals. And it ended up being a lot of, you know, crawling through the, the debris of, um, of this, this convenience store that had been demolished and trying to find clues there and going into the wrecked automobiles, which were still all around and trying to figure out if any of them had belonged to people that were in there. And it turned out that they had, and, and just, you know, asking every single person I could, um, if they, you know, could help me connect with, with people who were in there. And it, yeah, and it was, I, I think it probably took me three and a half of those four weeks to actually find everybody. And as I found them all, I just basically had individual interviews with all of them, um, and kind of figuring out what all their stories were. I mean, it was a fairly simple story as far as that went. It was really just trying to get their stories, figure out how, how those stories all came, came together that day. And, uh, and yeah, that was that. Was I hope the, the traffic noise isn't too bad here. Oh, I think I think we're all right. Um, okay, good. The uh, the um, the structure. Did you kind of envision that structure before you started reporting, uh, using the vignettes of each uh, each group of pe- uh, of, of people? Uh, I did not do that. Um, I certainly didn't envision it before I started reporting, and I I can't even really say that I envisioned it before I started writing. That I I don't usually work with with outlines. Um, I guess, and, uh, that one I didn't, um, I, uh, I knew, I mean, I knew after I found Reuben Carter, who ended up being 
you know, well, there's a lot of heroes in that story, but he's the, he's the, the, uh, he was working as a clerk at that convenience store mm -hmm. at the fast trip. And he ended up sort of taking actions that saved a lot of lives that, that, that day. Um, and was certainly a, a hero, um, and a very compelling kind of personal character as well. And so I, I definitely knew I wanted to start with him, um, shortly after I met him, um, uh, but, but, but then the story just kind of, you know, came together bit by bit after that. I mean, a, a big, because as I mentioned, there's, there's like, you know, 23 people that were in there, the biggest challenge structurally. And I guess, you know, in terms of just storytelling in general was how to tell the stories of all these people in a way that wouldn't lose the reader in what is a relatively short, you know, format. I mean, it was like 10,000 words or something. It's not, it's not war and peace and you don't have, you, you, you can't really rely on like, you know, uh, uh, a list of all the characters at the beginning. You need to somehow help the reader keep track of, of all these different characters. And so I, I did end up breaking all these people up into sort of subunits, I guess, either family units or, um, uh, you know, people who happen to be sort of thrown together in the moment and, um, uh, so yeah, those, those, but those, those, those were a combination, I guess, coming up with how to actually do that breaking up and how to structure it was, uh, um, uh, partly kind of a function of, well, what are the, what were the most compelling scenes that were happening and partly as a function of, well, how can I, like, how do I tell this story in a way that the readers are going to be able to keep track of who these people were? Cause that's the, that's, I, the, I, I hate to ever have like, make I want to make it as as uh I don't want I don't want people to get lost you know um I I I want people to always have kind of a clear view of 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 what I'm talking about and who I'm talking about and and um and in a story like that with a lot of characters that can be a challenge right when you finished that story and it was done and ready to to be printed did you did you have a feeling that it was going to resonate like it did with I think the the national audience that that kind of latched onto it i i definitely hoped it 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 would i mean i know that that was one of the uh, you know a few times i've done the stories where they've been kind of you know particularly moving to me the process of reporting them and even writing them has been moving um and that's one of those times um uh so i i I guess I, I guess I, I had hopes that that um, that people were going to like it, but I sort of you know I was I mean I was really it sounds kind of corny but I was really sort of intensely grateful to these people for having kind of shared their stories with me, mm -hmm. and I knew that they had kind of lived this amazing story, and that was um, and and it was it was a matter of like okay, well, these people have had this amazing experience, and I know this experience that they've had is an amazing story. So the only thing I can do at this point is mess it up. Like, there, it, it was, um, I was, I was certainly confident that they had, had, had lived this worthy, remarkable moment together. Um, and, and, and all I was doing was trying to kind of, you know, chronicle it. Um, uh, and I hoped, and I and I hoped that I had succeeded in doing that. Um, that was another. I mean, back to the editing question. I mean, um, 
in the editing of that piece, uh, the 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 kind of key. I mean, Tyler uh, obviously, you know, his his hands are all over all the pieces, but um, that was one where I had my my initial draft. I think was probably three thousand words longer than the final version. Um, I had sort of this extended coda where um, I follow up on what all the people had done sort of after they left the cooler. Um, and, uh, and we struggled with that version for a long time until finally, you know, I think he said, you know, the story really ends as soon as they, as soon as they leave the cooler. And so let's just, let's just basically lop off the last, the last third or whatever. Um, and I think that, I think that worked. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was one of my favorite stories, obviously of that year. Um, the uh, the first story that I ever read by you uh, was the brain that changed everything, and uh, you mentioned that uh, briefly earlier when we were talking about your the prophet story, um, and I, I, I there's just one line the line at the end of the first section that I think re I remember it drawing me in and pulling me in and making me read to the end is when he's talking as he's cutting up the the slice of brain and he says see he says how much work I have to do to clean up the mess your grandfather made. Um, can you talk a little bit about that story and kind of what that was like to report on something that is kind of personal, but also kind of not, if that makes any sense? Yeah, no, it makes total sense. Um, and the story is, I mean, what, what uh, the guy who said that, that line um, that you quoted um, is uh, Jacopo Anese, Dr. Jacopo Anese, who's a neuroanatomist at um, UC San Diego. And uh, he has, he works at a, a place, he founded this place called the Brain Observatory. Um, and he has been working to um, uh, basically preserve the brain of a, um, preserve and sort of map the brain of a um, former patient of my grandfather's, um, a guy, uh, a guy who became known as Patient HM, who um, my grandfather performed an experimental brain surgery on him. Uh, to treat his epilepsy and inadvertently, um, uh, well, not inadvertently, he, he, uh, he, he chose to, to, to attempt to treat this epilepsy by removing um, uh, his patient's hippocampus. He had had some success in, in, in um, treating epilepsy by removing one half of the hippocampus. And in this particular patient's case, he decided to basically remove the entire hippocampus. Um, hoping that that would alleviate the symptoms of epilepsy, and it it did to uh, to a great extent, but it also um, surprisingly uh, destroyed um, his patient's ability to uh, create new memories. At the time, the function of the hippocampus was unknown, um, and kind of everybody learned through this kind of tragic um, operation. Uh, that the, the hippocampus is, is, is essential for memory formation. And um, it, it was sort of this groundbreaking case in the history of medicine in that it taught us for the first, it sort of locked down, or it began to, to, to sort of uh, help us understand kind of the physiological underpinnings of, of memory. Um, and so I wrote this article kind of about his patient, uh, whose name was Henry, again, the patient who became known as patient HM, um, my grandfather and the history of, of memory science. Um, and uh, Jacopo, the uh, neuroanatomist, um, and I were sitting in his lab one evening, and 
and Jacopo was working with, with little sort of mounting slides of, of Henry's brain. Um, Henry lived for, for um, you know, six decades after the operation uh, and died in, I think, 2008. Um, and so Jacopo at the time was, was working on sort of mounting slides of, of these thin, thin slices of Henry's brain. Um, and it's a very painstaking process. And, and yeah, like you say, he, he sort of turned to me. Um, after having done this for hours and said, see, see how much work I have to do to clean up the mess your grandfather made. I remember, though, that, that, that line, I mean, I loved the line as soon as he said it. I wanted to use it. Um, but I, uh, I went back and forth with, with um, uh, Jacopo about that because I think he sort of regretted saying it as soon as he said it. Um, and uh, he thought it... Um, he thought it made him sound like he was slamming my grandfather too much, I think, um, which isn't how I took it. I mean, I, I guess I just took it as just this sort of compelling line, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, uh, but um, but I, I, I convinced him that, 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 that it really, that's not how it, how it came across. Um, but it definitely was challenging. I mean, you ask about um, – uh, what it's like to sort of write about something that's both personal and impersonal at the same time. I mean, it is personal. It is my grandfather. I didn't know him very well. Um, he died when I was uh, 10 years old, but, you know, he's still my, my mom's dad, and there are, you know, there's, there's um, it's hard to be objective. Um, I mean, it's, it's probably, I mean, you could argue it's possible to be objective about anything, but it's particularly hard to be objective about something like that. And if you are or you attempt to be, and you you show kind of like a you know a, a warts and all portrait of somebody. Um, it's easy to offend people, um, and I mean I guess it's a it's a good lesson because we're always you know whenever we're writing about people, we should probably always treat them as though they're family members in a sense. That might be a good lesson because you're you're definitely you know these are these are real people with with real lives, but it's it's uh, that that comes that hits closer to home when you're, when you're writing about a family member. Um, so it, it, it was a challenge and it actually remains a challenge. I'm working on a, on a book, um, uh, uh, sort of based on that, based on that article. Um, and, uh, the fact that it is part family history definitely makes it, um, uh, challenging or, uh, you know, it poses different sorts of challenges that I'm, that I'm used to. Mm -hmm. Now, I guess you uh, you had a kind of a unique start to the world of journalism. I think I read somewhere that you didn't necessarily go to school to be a journalist. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little? Yeah, bit I'm about not that? sure. I'm not sure if that's if that's unique or not. I I, I feel like um, I've met a lot of journalists who who didn't go to school um, um, in for journalism. Um, I didn't. You know, I didn't go to school for anything in particular. I ended up getting a history degree, but I you know that was sort of the the last of of uh, uh, several kind of majors that I dabbled in. Um, and I, you know, I always loved to write. Um, I, I kind of had pipe dreams about writing for a living, um, but I didn't have any clue how to do it. I don't think my, my, the college I went to, I don't think even had a journalism program. Um, and after, after I graduated, I, you know, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do at all. I, I had just read this series of books called The Alexandria Quartet by Lawrence Durrell. Um, and they made 
Alexandria in Egypt sound like the most romantic place on earth. And one of the protagonists was an English teacher in Alexandria. And so I decided I was going to move to Alexandria and be an English teacher. Um, so I got a, a TEFL certificate, a teaching English as a foreign language certificate um, in Cairo. I, mo I moved to Cairo um, shortly after graduating from college, got this TEFL certificate, wanted to um, move to Alexandria, but quickly discovered that Alexandria is no longer, it may have been the most romantic city on the planet during World <laughs> War II, but it isn't now. Um, so I kind of gave up on my Alexandrian dreams and, and stayed in Cairo um, and uh, had, had a great time there. I, I, I taught, I did end up teaching English, but I taught English at this weird kind of oil company where they wanted all their um, oil rig workers, all these roustabouts to learn English. And so they forced these poor guys who were working like two weeks on, one week off, they forced them to take several of their days off, their sort of precious days off. Um, they forced them to come in and spend, you know, have these epic English language training sessions with me, um, which made them miserable. And ultimately, it made them so miserable that they just stopped coming to class. It was like, you know, just passive resistance. And I, um, so I wound up with this, this empty classroom where I could write these long letters home. And I, I eventually, about sort of my, my, my experiences living in Egypt, and I eventually tried to sort of repurpose some of these letters um, into articles for local English language publications. So I would just basically like drop the gr dear grandma and, and, uh, um, kind of change, tweak a little, a few little things and then send them off to, um, local newspapers, one in particular called the Middle East Times. And that's where I got my first byline, the Middle East Times. Um, and, uh, and it was a, it was a huge thrill. I mean, I'd never, I, again, I'd never really even, considered journalism at that point until I was like, well, you know, I've got these letters, uh, you know, there are newspapers here and let's see what I can do. And, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I remember, I remember literally I was living on a houseboat at the time on the Nile and I remember getting a phone call from an editor at the Middle East Times saying that they had, they wanted to run one of my stories. And I remember literally jumping up and down on the deck of my houseboat. I was so excited. Um, they ended up killing that story, though. So. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't throw myself into the Nile. Oh, that's good. I, uh, yeah, I and, kept trying. And then you ended up in Atlanta, at Atlanta Magazine? Yeah, I, I yeah. moved from Egypt to Savannah, Georgia, actually, and, and started at a startup alternative news. I, I, they hired me as a staff writer at a startup alternative news weekly there called Connect Savannah. And I was there for a little over a year. Um, then I took a little bit of time in Mexico, and then I went to um, uh, to Atlanta, and I ended. Up, I did some um, some freelance work for the Oxford American, um, and I kind of used those clips, I guess, to to get a job at Atlanta Magazine um, as a staff writer. Um, and I was there for for years. That was great. Um, I had some other great editors there. Uh, a guy named Lee Walburn and a woman named uh, Rebecca Burns. And, um, yeah, did, 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 had, had a fantastic time there. Um, uh, made some great friends, um, among them, Justin Heckert, um, who, uh, uh, is an amazing writer who, who, um, hired on at Atlanta magazine while I, while I was there. And, and Justin um, was our first, uh, gangry podcast guest. So, um, yeah, nice to have the full circle here. And he told me, 
uh, when I when I mentioned that I was going to be interviewing you for a podcast to read Possessed, uh, which was a story you had in, in Atlanta Magazine uh, back in November 2003, uh, and I found it in the Google Books and I read it and again very nicely done. So thank you, thank you very much. Oh. Yeah, uh, Justin and I that was the that story ran in the first issue that Justin and I both had features in. Um, he had this amazing story about. Um, uh, uh, spelling bees, and he basically followed one girl, a girl named Athena, as she made her way um, through kind of the, not the professional, but the the, the, the top tiers of the spelling bee circuit. Yeah. Um, anyway, it was great, great story. Yeah. Um, what do you like to read? Uh, yeah, I, um, I. Uh, I, I, I definitely read a lot of. I, I probably read more kind of magazines than than anything else. Um, but I do still. Um, I still I, I still read fiction um, when I can. I, I probably don't don't read um, as much as I should. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I recently read, let's see, the, there's a great George Saunders uh, collection of short stories called uh, 10th, of De- 10th of December. I hope I'm getting that right. It's not, I hope that's the date. Um, and uh, um, I recently read uh, Mike Paterniti's The Telling Room, which was awesome. Um, and uh, then I, 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 read, um, I read this great um, uh, book, uh, uh, written by, um, I, I want to say David Lipsky, um, about a road trip he took with um, David Foster Wallace, um, which was which was fantastic, and actually inspired me. I've always I've always loved uh, uh, David Foster Wallace's uh, nonfiction, and I've read some of his short stories, but I've never actually tried to tackle Infinite Jest before. So I uh, I, I recently picked that up, and I'm looking forward to. Oh. Digging in. I've tried twice and I've I've failed both times. So it's sitting on my dresser, and at some point in time, I will I will make it through if it takes me an entire <laughs> summer uh, of yeah. doing nothing but yeah. like hiding. It's definitely um, daunting. Yeah, it's uh, it, I, it's sitting on my dresser, and I think it's taunting me. Um, I mean, it's just so so much. But uh, maybe maybe the best thing to do would be to get that on you know Kindle or iPad, so the bulk of it isn't so evident. Right, right. It doesn't look quite as intimidating. Yeah. Um, uh, well, Lou, are you working on anything that you can that, that might be coming out soon that you could tell us about? Yeah, I uh, well, I'm I'm working on on the book, um, and then I um, I'm kind of trying to nail down my uh, next Esquire feature right now, and can't. Yeah, I mean, I, it's a it's not locked down, and B, I can't really talk about them right, right. while I'm working on them. Yeah, but, great. Uh, well, yeah. thank you so much for joining what us. We yourself, really appreciate are you, it. Are you working on, on, on anything at the moment? Uh, I Right now, I am doing everything I can to keep up with the classwork. So, no, I don't have anything. Um, I've got some, some pitches ready to go out. But, uh, but uh, I'm curious about the stories that, that I've read of yours. Uh, you wrote you know, one about the historical figure, um, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Olympian um, whose name, Walsh. What, yeah, what, Stella. Stella Walsh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then you wrote the other one about the uh, the um, the horse the the horseshoe pitcher right uh, right uh, whose name I can't remember again yeah, Robbins Brian Brian Simmons 
Brian Simmons. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, anyway, they were both great stories. Um, both very different in the sense that one is this, you know, living character, and you compose the stories out of a, you compose the story out of observed scenes, and the other one is almost entirely sort of historical. Um, did you? I mean, was the process very different for you? Did yeah. you find? The, you know, from start to finish, was everything different, or were you trying to find scenes in the in the even in the historical one? How yeah. are, you know what start, was the difference? Yeah, for you? start to fi- they couldn't have been more different. And yeah. the the actually the historical one was the hardest thing I've ever written in my life. Um, you talked about how um, the uh, the the prophet story was saved uh, by your editor. Um, Glenn Stout literally saved the, the Stella Walsh story because I turned in a first draft. It was initially supposed to be 4,000 words. I turned in a first draft that was about 5,000, and it was just an absolute garbage. It was horrible. Um, he, sent, he, he sent me back a great email saying, I think you've got the bones for a good story here, but here's what we need to do. You know, And it was like a list that was a mile long, and I kind of – you know, um, it, I knew like he was entirely right uh, with everything, so I kind of scrapped the entire five thousand words. I threw it all away and started over and rewrote the entire story. Um, and I really worked on. It was hard because there were no scenes with her. Um, she never spoke to. She rarely spoke to media. Um, she very little like there were no radio transcripts that I could find of her talk. You know, any. It was really hard to find stuff in her own words. And um, even in the you went into the archives and all you found basically were her champions letters. Yeah, right? yeah. All, and all I found was um, like she left nothing. She left nothing yeah. behind. Um, no diaries, nothing. And I, I even went to her the house that she lived in yeah. um, because I saw that it was still owned by somebody with the same surname. Yeah. Um, so I made the assumption that it's still in the family somehow. And I went there and I knocked on the door and nobody answered. So I left a note. Um, and apparently I freaked the person out because they immediately called um, Rob Lucas, who's making the documentary on Stella, and mm-hmm. said, who's this guy? Why is he stopping at my house? I don't want to talk to him. Mm. Um, and so I didn't even pursue that anymore. Um, so it was really hard to, to – so I essentially it worked on creating scenes. I had to use all yeah. newspaper archives. Um, and then was, the ar- was her husband still a lot – her ex-husband, the wrestler? Um you know? That's funny because I I went back and forth with Rob Lucas, who ended up being a great help on on okay. the thing, and we both kind of think he's still alive, but we have yeah. no, we neither of us have been able to find him. Yeah. Um. So he had a generic enough name, mm-hmm. um. That it, it's just it's if he is still alive, he'd be in his like nineties. Yeah. Um. So yeah, we didn't. Neither of us found him. So, um. But uh, it was tough. The the Brian Simmons piece was probably the most fun I've ever had doing anything. Um, yeah. I literally went to Knoxville, Tennessee for four days and watched him pitch horseshoes. Yeah. And the funny thing was I left him a couple voicemails letting him know that I was coming and that he apparently never checked. So he mm. had no idea that I was there to write a story on him yeah. until like I knew what he looked like. So I saw him at the tournament. Yeah. And I said, hey, Brian, it's Matt Tullis. Um, hoping to write a story on you. And he's like, okay, sure. And you knew you knew it was going to be about him. You didn't show up at the horseshoe tournament looking for a story and found him. You knew prior to going. No, I knew prior. To, yeah, no, I yeah. knew going in that it was him that I – because when I was at the Columbus Dispatch, I wrote about Alan Francis. Um, okay, yeah. And that story was – 
it was not nearly as long. It's about a thousand words long. It ran in the dispatch, um, and uh, that was like a cup in like 2007. Um, and so, like, I had been keeping track of him, seeing what's going on um, with his career because he just keeps winning and winning. And I kept checking it, and I kept thinking maybe someday I'll pitch something on him to a bigger magazine or something. Uh, and then one, I just happened to check and saw that he had lost twice in a row. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I've got to write about the guy who beat him. Um, yeah. Especially when I went back and saw that the last guy who had beaten him was the same guy. And yeah. then there had been this like decade in between. Um, and I found like one newspaper story that talked about health issues that Brian had in between. And that's why he hadn't been pitching. Um, yeah. And so I literally, I had pitched that story all over the place. Um, and was getting like the nicest rejection letters ever. Um, mm. Like Sports Illustrated said, if it's 2008, we run this story in a heartbeat, um, but we don't have the pages to do it anymore. Um, and that's it. Just happened to be like the day I got that email back from from the editor at Sports Illustrated. Um, Glenn Stout put out the call for SB Nation Longform. Okay. Um, so I, I had the pitch. I mean, I was like, okay. So I turned around and I shipped it off to Glenn and like. Later that day, he called me and said, let's talk about this. So um, so that was a lot of fun. I just sat there and watched, and the whole time I'm there, I'm thinking um, that my being there was making him nervous, and mm. that's why he was doing so poorly. Mm. And I actually – I brought that up with him multiple times. I was like, please tell me that my being here isn't like making you nervous and, and freaking you out. And he kept saying, no, no, it's this goddamn clay. It's horrible. This clay's yeah. horrible, yeah. Um, and, uh, and and so I mean I was really nervous that I was the one making him not you know just being there changes so much so much and he swore yeah. to God that that wasn't the case so um, but he was I found out later I didn't find out until after the tournament that he had a, um, essentially a broken ankle ah. that he was pitching on um, yeah. so because I called him I, I just called him and asked you know how things were and, and what were, you know, how the ride home was and everything. And he's like, well, I got to go to the doctor because I think my ankle's broken. And I was like, did you know about this before? He's like, yeah, I knew about it before, but I just, I wanted to go pitch horseshoes. And, um, so yeah, he was really, it, that was a, such a fun story to do. So, but I like kind of offbeat sports stories. Um, yeah. And so I kind of just see, I just, I had a piece in sports on earth. Um, right a couple weeks ago on a cameraman at the PGA championship. Um, the guy up in the tower on the 18th green, um, okay. just like what it's like to record golf, golf's de- defining moments, you know, yeah. through the lens of a camera. And that was a lot of fun. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I like, I like doing sports, but I don't like necessarily to do the game stuff. So, yeah. although I am doing high school football tomorrow night for the local newspaper. So, um, that's always interesting so hmm. all right but well you know it's uh thanks a lot i mean it's been fun yeah. no thank you i appreciate it we've been talking with luke dittrick a contributing editor at esquire magazine we've linked to all the stories we discussed on our website that's www.gangrythepodcast.com join me next time when i talk with jason fagone who writes for Philly Magazine and has written the book Ingenious, the true story of invention, automotive daring, and the race to revive America. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter at Gangry Podcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. We also have a website. It's www.gangrythepodcast.com. 
Gangry the Podcast is produced in the studios of WRDL 88.9 at Ashland University. This episode was produced by Steve Cease. Our intro music comes from Noah Heyman. I'm your host, Matt Tullis. Thank you.